Hello and welcome to Enfocus, coming to you this week from the Temple of Knowledge on Mount Kaf in the Kingdom of Persia. My name is Hilka, I am your host. Joining me this week is a blast from the past. Uh, long, longer time listeners of the podcast may recognize Andrew, previous host of Enfocus. How are you doing today? I'm doing fine. How are you? Uh, I'm good. I'm good. Uh, I can't say the same for my usual co-host, Rosalie, who is uh, sick and in no shape to record a podcast voice-wise. So um, we got Andrew in to do a one-off because the news never stops. It just never stops. There will always be more news. So let's talk about some news. The first story we have on this episode is a reminder. We sort of already knew this, if memory serves, uh, that online services for the Nintendo 3DS and the Wii U are ending on April 8th, uh, based on the sort of press release announcement that they had on the, on the website. Pokemon Bank seems to be the only thing that's going to work, though they did make a point of saying that that's not going to be the case forever. Uh, but no more spot pass, no more wonder trading on the Pokemon games. No more online gaming for Mario Kart 7 if those servers were even still up. Um, March 12th is also the last day to merge your eShop accounts between 3DS and Switch to transfer any remaining money to your Switch. I did that ages ago when I panic bought a whole bunch of 3DS games right before the store closed. How about you? I didn't panic buy anything. I just bought things because they were great prices. I brought Almost all the things Capcom had on sale. I got Mega Man. I got all the Phoenix Wright games. I got all the Monster Hunter games, even though oh, I'm sick. probably realistically never going to play any of those. And I got uh, the Shovel Knight collection for like five bucks, which is a really good price for the 3DS version. So I got all of those that I may play someday, but really I just got them just to have them. Oh, I got a couple of the Resident Evil games I didn't already have too. Nice. I picked up, I think my best pickup on that was, uh, I forget the exact name of it, but the, the Etrian Odyssey, like, remake of the oh, first yeah, and second ones yeah. that had, like, the more involved single-player mode. I don't think those uh, were cheap the, enough for me. Like, I had to go, like, three, five bucks to get them. <laughs> if they were any more than that, I was like, nah, that's all right. I don't need it. I think they were, like, 20. Like, they were, no, I think they were less. They were, like, 15. They were actually on sale. I, I did look through some of the, like, first-party stuff, and wow, like, Ocarina of Time was not discounted at all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you still had to pay full price if you wanted to get, like, Pokemon X. Nintendo doesn't care. <laughs> no, they really it, don't. There are probably people at Nintendo that are surprised to learn you can buy games online. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe one day we'll leave the horrors of friend codes behind. Well, I mean, I already have. I know the Switch has friend codes, but <laughs> when was the last time you used a friend code? It was the 3DS era for me. I I used, for a couple of my Switch friends, I still use the friend code, I think. God, I can't remember now. I also haven't added anyone to my Switch friends list in a couple of years, so... 
Oh god, I don't, such a useless feature on the Switch. <laughs> I don't play a lot of online games on Switch. Just Monster Hunter, basically. Like I'll get like random friend requests from people who like found me on like a pinball FX leaderboard. It's like, why are you sending me a friend request? I don't know who you. We have not played a game together. Why are you just sending me a random friend request from the pinball FX leaderboards? What is wrong with you? That's an excellent way to segue into our next uh, sort of pair of stories. Um, the first one is new pastel pink Joy-Cons being released alongside Princess Peach Showtime. It's a game that we've talked about on the podcast a couple times now because I'm not going to like Rosalie super excited for it. And I'm not going to lie, I'm kind of interested as well. It looks like it has a couple of interesting ideas, uh, including... Um, some stuff they shoot off in a new trailer to go along with the Joy-Cons that showed the Cowgirl, Peach, and Ninja Peach uh, outfits, complete with Naruto running, which I always love to see. Are you uh, interested in this game at all? Yeah, it looks like fun. I like the idea of, like, you know, all the world's a stage. Like, every level is just a stage on a play, and it just changes around as she runs through it. It's like she's performing a role in different. I'm trying to think of a word other than play, because I've said play so many times, but in a play. Uh, <laughs> it could be a lot of fun. It looks like it, it really might be based more on Kirby. That's kind of. I'm getting a lot of Kirby vibes from it. But uh, mm, yeah. I, I think it might be a lot of fun. Paper Mario that had some amount of. Yeah, that was the Thousand Year Door. Or, yeah. yeah, Thousand Year Door. Uh, the. Uh, the Switch one they released, whose name I've already forgotten because it wasn't very good. That one you, you'd perform for an audience, too. But Thousand Year Door is the one to really talk about. <laughs> I love that game. That's the one getting the remake this year. Yeah, it is. Sick. I've never played it. Yeah, it, Every battle is like you're playing for an audience. It's like It's literally set on a stage, and you can knock things down from the scenery to land on enemies' heads. And toads in the audience will cheer for you. And if you're doing really well, they'll actually throw things at you. And that's actually how you get experience points and coins, if I recall correctly, is actually the audience will throw them at you at the end of the match, depending upon how well you did. Oh, I think I've seen clips of that. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, it's it's a fun way of showing the battles, like kind of like in Tokyo Mirage Sessions, where it's all on a, a stage. It's like a J-pop performance. It's it's fun like that. It looks like a very interesting game, and I'm curious to pick it up, although it probably won't be soon because I've got a lot of other stuff that I'm still playing right now. <laughs> uh, our next story is also sort of a two stories in one. It's a follow-up to something we've talked about previously. Um, some of you may be aware that there was a Pokemon exhibit at the Van Gogh Museum here in the Netherlands. That has since ended. It ended on the 1st of February, if memory serves. I didn't manage to go, because I don't live close to Amsterdam. But those of you who are aware of this may be remembering that the night before an opening day was a disaster at the gift shop. Scalpers were literally <laughs> stumbling over each other trying to get the Pokemon card and a bunch of the other merch. Um, and so the 
Pikachu in a gray felt hat card is now becoming available through an alternate means, which is through either local game stores or larger chain retailers. Initially, this was supposed to be just at local game stores, but the decision was made to include larger chain retailers because the thought would be that they would be more well-regulated and have less likely to have like a backdoor deal with a scalper. There was reportedly already a game store who claimed to like in like a private Facebook group or something along those lines have like, or not the other, or have a scalper who had a deal with a game store who was like, I'm just buying out the entire box that they're getting of these cards. Which, why would you do that? I mean, to make money, I guess, but come on, don't be a jerk. People are the worst. Does the Netherlands have a policy that we reserve the right to refuse service to anyone? Is that a thing over there? I I confess I don't actually know. Mm. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me, to be honest. Well, things like that happen here. Like, like t- in the U.S., things like that happen. Like, the Tickle Me Elmo was the big thing. Like, And I, I'm sure that there were definitely deals going on where somebody was paying off, like, a store manager or something to get all the Tickle Me Elmos so they could sell them, scalp them at a markup. But a lot of the places here, if you try to do that with, like, the big thing, they'll just tell you to screw off. Like, <laughs> you get three Max of three, maybe max of one per customer. Who knows? <laughs> and then be on your way. Goodbye. Which, uh, yeah, I I have seen signs like that in stores. Like there was a period in, I think, 2021 where, to keep it topical, I guess, Pokemon cards were suddenly exploding in popularity because <laughs> everyone was cracking packs trying to get, like, really cool foils and stuff. And I did see at yeah. local stores that sold Pokemon cards, they would have, like, a limit of this many packs per customer per day. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, the sort of downside to this, to including the chain retailers, is the local game stores, which are the ones that need the financial help more, uh, are getting reportedly way less stock uh, of the Pikachu cards. They were going to get 100, now they're getting 10. Hmm. Which is kind of a bummer. Well, that happens all over here in the U.S. Like, uh, Nintendo sends so little stock to our stores. Like, it's basically, if you don't pre-order it, you're not going to get it. Uh, as far as our brick-and-mortar stores. Like, uh, I don't know how many people just buy online now. <laughs> but, yeah. That's probably a supply issue here. because physical games? On a lot of them, yeah. I don't know how it's been since the Switch because I buy all my games online because uh, I live in an interesting area of the country where a lot of the places that sell video games have just disappeared. Uh, so I kind of had to go online. Uh, it was either that or go an hour out of my way to buy a video game, which with as often as I buy video games, it was just not a reasonable uh, answer. So yeah, I, I have all the games I buy shipped to my house now. So I don't know how it's been in recent years, but like in the Wii U era, like if I wanted Star Fox Zero, if I didn't pre-order it, I was not going to get a copy of Star Fox Zero because the store only got enough copies to fulfill pre-orders. That's wild. I didn't, like, I, I guess I'm coming from a position of privilege here where like, 
I don't know if I've ever walked into a game store and not have been able to buy a copy of I mean I guess there were some like lesser known games that wouldn't like mm-hmm. have that problem with that would have that problem but like I I I can't say I've ever walked into a game store and not been able to just grab a copy of the new Pokemon off the shelf That's wild I couldn't I couldn't say for sure on specific games uh, I was in a Best Buy a few months ago they had a lot of Switch games but I don't know if I would be able to get the exact game I wanted if I was there looking. And, like, I don't even go to GameStop anymore here in the U.S. because their selection sucks, at least the stores around me. Their selections suck, and they're overpriced. Like, I'll find a used game that I can get new online for the same price or less. It's just, like, this is not even worth walking into a store anymore. (laughs) Yeah. I, I did also want to mention, to come back to the story, um, part of the reason that the um, situation at the museum was such a mess is apparently some of the staff there behaved improperly and showed preferential treatment, mm. allegedly, um, to certain people. Uh, an anonymous source has told a Dutch newspaper who reported on this, Het Parol, Uh, that there were at least four people who have now been uh, suspended. They they apparently (laughs) tipped people off to when the cards would be available, and one of them reportedly took a whole box of the cards home to sell uh, later. (laughs) Imagine losing your job over Pokemon cards. (laughs) I mean, for the price on the secondary market that i saw for some of these i i checked i think i talked about this on the podcast as well when this happened i checked a card market which is the like major european online trading card like reselling uh website you can sell like pokemon magic Yu-Gi-Oh, lorcana a bunch of other games there was one uh that was listed as heavily played um, condition-wise because the note on it literally said damaged in stampede and it was still like (laughs) like 75 euros I think for one card they want that turbo man doll and our uh, final news story is one that you actually made me aware of uh, by posting about it on the official Game Podular Discord. Um, Sorry about that. Dead Cells, a game that I am continuous that I was until recently continually amazed to discover was still getting content updates, uh, is getting its final content update in the near future. We don't know exactly when yet. It does have, doesn't been a confirmed date, but 35 content updates and four pieces of paid DLC for a game that left early access in 2018. That's pretty wild for an indie studio. Yeah, like, I'm of two minds about it because, like, obviously the game's been very successful. Very happy for them for that. Uh, it's a steady job for a lot of people to be doing that kind of thing. I just get annoyed when a game is constantly getting updates because I, I played that back in 2018. 
uh, I had to wait for the first major content update to come out to finish it because the game was so dang hard when they first released it. Uh, <laughs> the first one of the first major content updates they put out, like one of the main things it did was made the game easier so I could actually beat it. <laughs> um, and then I thought that was it. I'm done. I finally beat it. It's over. And then. Then there was another content update, then another, then another, then another. It's like, no, I beat this game. Stop releasing new stuff for it. It's to the point now where I feel like I got to wait five years for the game to actually be finished to play it because I, I like to play a game, beat it, and then move on to the next one, not just continually circle back to a game I thought I'd already finished. Uh, that's just a, a personal philosophy i have towards playing games so it just every time a new update came out for it i just got more and more annoyed that i felt like i had missed out on stuff <laughs> so out of curiosity um now that the final content update is on the horizon are you going to come back to it and play like play it again in one fell swoop maybe uh Especially if I can get it cheap on another platform, because I feel like I I've, I feel like I've played it on Switch, even though there's a lot more to it now. Like, think more than twice what was in the original game is is in the game now. Like the last time I played was the Rise of the Giant DLC, which added one new area and one new boss, and now there's like four new areas plus the whole Castlevania thing which I'm really not clear how much that actually added to the game if it's just one area or if it's like a complete redesign of the game I was never really clear what exactly that was but I, I'm far more likely to play that if I can get it on on Xbox for a good price versus you know getting it on Switch but maybe someday I might come back to it I just I, I feel like I've played it so there's cognitive dissonance happening there where like no i'm done with that game even though i know that i've barely played half of it because <laughs> <laughs> that's something that i i was thinking about as well and i meant i i sort of mentioned this on the discord as well that it's kind of wild to think about how many games are getting this much post-launch support like super smash bros ultimate is still getting mm -hmm. like new spirits for <laughs> those of you who care about those things i am not one of them luckily luckily the spirits never made a great impact on me so every time there's a new announcement of new spirits i'm like oh that's nice <laughs> but like i saw that on on my twitter feed like a couple of days ago even where i was like yeah. wow that's still happening why? Yeah, I know there's, there's Hades spirits being added to it now, which is kind of amazing because Hades is a an indie game that came out like a year after Smash Brothers did. That's kind of yeah. where the game series is at. But I don't, the whole spirit aspect of the game, like beyond the single-player adventure mode they had... I never really drew me in. I know there's the whole spirit board, which I, I just barely played because I just... I didn't care. <laughs> it, it was like a reasonable thing to do with your time if you didn't own a lot of other Switch games like I did yeah. when I first got my Switch. Like, I, oh, I, I got, like, I, I actually sold a bunch of my, like, PS2 collection to, to buy mm -hmm. my Switch. Uh, oh. And so I had, like, two games. I had Mario Odyssey oh, and I had yeah. Smash Bros. 
good choices. Yeah. Like, I don't know how many I had at the time Smash Brothers came out, but I have over 1,600 Switch games now, so <laughs> I, I have no shortage of games to play. Fair enough. So uh, another thing I'm sort of curious about is if, like, if it's a case of, like, a big content-expanding DLC, something like uh, Phantom Liberty for Cyberpunk or Sunbreak for Monster Hunter Rise, do you, like... If it's just like one solid release, mm-hmm. do you go back and play it then because it's all new stuff that you don't have to replay the game for? Those I will come back for. Like I'm super old school as far as this kind of thing. I think of those more like expansion packs, which they used to do in the 90s. Like they would release Warcraft 2, Tides of Darkness, and then like maybe a year later they would release the expansion pack for Warcraft 2 Beyond the Dark Portal, which is... You need the original game to play, but it's basically a sequel. That's how I kind of look at those kind of DLC packs. I'm perfectly happy to come back and play those. I just basically consider them an addition to the original game, sort of like a semi-sequel. Has its own story, its own self-contained story most of the time. Has its own credit sequence. It's just like another game for me at that point. But like, if it's just a little tiny upgrade pack that's where i get annoyed like cult of the lamb looks like the next game that's kind of turning into that it's like didn't you release a complete game two years ago <laughs> why are you still doing updates for this game uh I, I, that's the reality of game development now especially indie game development <clears throat> there's ideas that you want to do that you don't have the time or the resources to do them and once you had a successful game on the market you've got a cash flow coming in now you have those resources you can do those things you wanted to do uh, i understand that's the reality of game development it's just my perception as a game player especially a game player who is still very much stuck in in the 90s in terms of how they approach the playing of video games i just get annoyed by the constant update packs i i do genuinely miss the day like i i didn't do much gaming in the 90s given that i was single digit age um but i i do definitely miss the 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 times when i would just like okay i have rolled credits on this game i can put it away now it, it's so wild to be that like so much so many things have like post credits uh yeah. material now <laughs> like kirby in the forgotten land has mm-hmm. an entire like post credits campaign basically that has the true final boss of the game and that's so weird i don't know maybe it's because it's kirby that it was weird to me but i don't know like not a big fan of that i i miss the days when you could just finish a game instead of just sort of stop Mm. playing it yeah it's it's the live certification of games like not every game is a live service game but the philosophy of live service is still getting into every game was like let's have a reason for the person to play forever like you know skyrim came out it had the radiant quests which just randomly generate a quest which in, in this case means we've stuck a random item in a random dungeon go grab it and bring it back to this npc then do it again nobody did that stuff because it was boring and it was obviously procedurally generated it was just ridiculous but they've continued to develop that idea today and now now there are entire games it's just built around that idea some people seem to really like it 
I'm not one of them. <laughs> uh, I like to do the content that is pre-made for the game. And I will do as much of it as I can before I hit credits. Because unless I really, 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 really like the game, once I hit credits, I'm usually done and moving on to something else. Yeah. Th- those of you who listened to not the most recent episode of Game Podular and Focused, but the one before that, will have heard my thoughts on Fortnite and live service games specifically <laughs> surrounding Fortnite. Uh, they were not positive, um, to put hmm. it mildly. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, I, I don't think I'm quite as... I don't want to say stubborn because that's more negative than I'm intending here uh, as you are, but I, I get it. I definitely get it. I get, I get games like that. Like I, I say to myself often, and I post on my social feeds often, like if I was 25, 30 years younger than I am now, and I could not afford to play every game that I want to play, which was frequently the situation I was in when I was 10, 15 years old. I would yeah. really be into Fortnite. I would really be into Destiny, which is a game that you buy once or you don't have to buy at all in the case of Fortnite. And it just constantly gives you new things to play. It's a forever game that is either very cheap or doesn't cost anything. I get the appeal to that of people who have limited funds. Uh, like I, I'll often argue, like there's a big discussion in in game criticism sometimes, where like is, if a game is expensive and is short, is that a bad thing? I say no, it's not. But the converse of that, if a game is cheap and is long, like Stardew Valley, that is absolutely a point in its favor because it's just better value for the customer. But yeah. So when I look at a thing like Fortnite and like I imagine myself in a situation where I want to play the latest game and I can't afford it, I would be delighted to live in a, in a, a, a kind of game ecosystem where the latest and the most popular game is actually free. I get that. I understand that. It's just it's not where I'm at now and I can afford to not be there. And I'm pretty grateful for that. I played Fortnite for a summer in 2018, I think. And actually, I really enjoyed it. I know it's completely different now. It's got a completely different map. It's got all those new game modes. Honestly, I haven't really looked too closely because I I just I'm more focused on all the games that I spend actual money on. So I got to justify those purchases. (laughs) But uh, I got nothing against Fortnite personally. I, I thought it was a lot of fun when I played it. And I, I do understand how it's been successful as it has. I just wish that every other company in the world would stop trying to make their own Fortnite. It's like, I'm sorry, friends. There's only room on the market for a handful of live service games, and the market is already saturated. You are not going to make Suicide Squad kill the Justice League into the next big thing. It's not going to happen. I'm sorry. That was the literal example I was going to bring up as well. It's, uh, <laughs> but what what one thing you did bring up in terms of price is I think that's one of the reasons, and I and I don't think I'm blowing anyone's mind here when I say this that games like Among Us or a recent example, Lethal Company, um, managed to get so successful is Lethal Company was like what seven bucks, eight on Steam. And sure, it's. I've in, never heard of that. I don't know if it's actually in early access or just 
continually update updated but like the burial the barrier to entry for that is very low and especially in a game that is multiplayer that you have to play with uh either friends or strangers having mm. like it, it's a lot easier to convince someone to pay like 10 bucks for among us than it is to say like hey let's play baldur's gate 3 together uh it costs <laughs> 60 euros and if you don't like it you're out 60 euros oh yes the uh the <laughs> the trigger we had to pull every time we played a game before the internet era it's like here's 60 dollars yeah. for a, a rail shooter you'll finish it in 20 minutes it's like what <laughs> that's how games used to be part priced <laughs> yeah i have not fond i have unfortunate memories of paying real dollary dues for the amazing spider-man on nintendo 3ds <laughs> uh, <because laughs> yeah the demo the demo was really good and also mm. the only good level in the game i wonder if that was the uh the e3 demo because that that was often the the thing in that era was they would make they would spend a lot of time and a lot of money to make the E3 demo really good, and then the rest of the game was completely forgettable. That happened a lot in the 2000s. Yeah. So, we have been playing some games recently. In fact, the two of us have been playing the same game recently. Um, listeners of the podcast will know that I discussed the demo for Prince of Persia The Lost Crown on the last episode, and uh, I said that it convinced me to play the game, and I did, and I finished it, and so did you. So we're going to mm-hmm. talk about that for a bit, compare notes, see what we thought. Uh, let's, do some, let's do some general thoughts first. What did you think? I thought it was really good, uh, really impressed with it. I didn't have too much of an expectation for it i just i saw there's a new prince of persia coming out when they announced it last year it's like okay fine i i like the last prince of persia games i am going to play it and then more information started coming out about it and i was like wait it's a non-linear platformer ubisoft like ubisoft the biggest monster of all of the publisher developers the uh, assembly line company game who makes all their games by you know like having all their different studios make like tiny little pieces of the game then assembling it all together into just one giant game so all their games end up being the same ubisoft is releasing a metroidvania (laughs) that took me by surprise and then i played it it's like oh wait this is actually a really good metroidvania i don't know if it's the best one i've ever played but there's definitely playing this i felt a lot of the influence of indie style nonlinear platformers, you know, like Hollow Knight, uh, was top of my mind playing a lot of this. Um, Hollow Knight was the one that I was thinking of as well, because yeah. uh, Hollow Knight is a game that I haven't played very much of, mostly just because I couldn't really get used to the way controlling the character felt in that game. I think you mentioned to me that like the knight in Hollow Knight feels very heavy. Uh, and that's a really good way of describing it. Whereas Sargon in this game controls like a dream. He's fast, mm-hmm. uh, but I know ne- he, he's fast, but not in a way that I ever felt like 
I didn't have control over his movement. You know, he could turn very quickly. Uh, Mid-air adjustments were very easy, mostly. And that's very important for the kind of platforming challenges that there are in this game. And especially the combat was really, really good. The combat is great. Like, uh, as, as good as this game is as a nonlinear platformer, I think the best things in this game are the boss fights. Oh, yeah. What, what, what I will say about the combat system is there's a lot of depth you can get into with it, but I didn't super feel that was necessary all the time, especially because, like, setting up some of the longer combos isn't always super possible given how the enemies move. <laughs> Yeah, and like and the, the deeper in you get, most of the enemies you're fighting who you don't defeat, you know, like super quickly are heavy enemies. There's there's a lot of emphasis on juggling, of throwing an enemy up into the air, chasing after them and hitting them. Now, on my build at least, by the time I tossed the guy up in the air, they were already almost dead because I focused almost all of my upgrades and uh, the amulets that I equipped to Sargon on increasing his sword damage including his Same. base sword damage, and then I had another amulet that increases his damage when he's in the air. So by the time I was juggling something, they were they were pretty much dead already. So that left the rest of the enemies who you can't throw in the air who were the major difficulties for me. You, you can sort of get around them by using the, uh, the dodge uh, mid-combo. Mm -hmm. And like, um, I will say in terms of timing and especially fighting some of the heavier enemies... I I struggled a lot with getting the timing from the for the parry right. Uh, early on I did as well and uh, that made the early parts of the game feel really difficult especially since Sargon doesn't begin with many hit points. <laughs> no. So there is there is a real learning curve there but Matt Paprakia uh, game critic who's a friend of mine he he complained about that almost right away and I, I had to assure him like you got to stick with the game I found it has a real learning curve but once I got Sargon a few health upgrades and once I got used to the parrying mechanic I actually found the game's difficulty really leveled out at least on the default warrior difficulty it got to the point where even the bosses most of them I finished on my first try uh, Menelaus yeah. was the only one where it really took me a few tries to get him right. My my hot tip, if I mean, I say it's a hot tip for surviving, but it's like something you can't do until probably the midpoint of the the game. Is I the scrapper merchant or something? The one you have to use mm. Xerxes coins for mm -hmm. uh, sells an amulet that gives you health regeneration at the cost of reducing your sword damage. But you also you also have an amulet that increases your sword damage when you're at full health. So. <laughs> that's that's clever. I didn't think of that. I didn't use any of his because I looked at the trade-offs of all of the coins that he offered, and I was like, no, that doesn't sound appealing at all. But I, I was having no difficulties with the game at that point, so I just didn't feel it was necessary. But we should talk about the Xerxes coins because uh, they're interesting. I, I really liked um, so this this game was primarily made by Ubisoft Montpellier, who mm -hmm. you may know uh, as the developers of Zombie U and the Rayman Origins and Rayman Legends games, yeah. and 
the mechanic that they have for the Xerxes coins is straight out of Rayman Origins. It's there's a coin just sort of hovering in midair in like a little mini platforming challenge, and you have to get to it, and it'll sort of float <laughs> around you until you get back on solid ground, and only then you will have collected it. And I like that it offers just a little bit more game for finding mm. the collectibles, you know? It's not just, mm-hmm. oh, here's one, cool, done. There's an added little challenge there, and I really, I really, really like that. Yeah, what it reminded me most of, like I, I did play Rayman Origins, but I've only played it once, so <laughs> I don't, I don't know. It didn't, it didn't stick with me. Uh, other than I thought it was a really good game, so I, my mind did not go there as a comparison. Where my mind went was Celeste, which has the strawberries that are strewn around every level, and you've got to, you've got to reach the strawberries to claim them, and quite often you have to air dash and wall climb through this, this ridiculous gauntlet to get to the strawberries. Felt the same way about the Xerxes coins, where I had to really look at a lot of these. Was like, is this even possible? But luckily the double jump refresh in prince of persia is actually really generous uh yeah you usually it's the case if you want your double jump to refresh in a game like this you have to touch solid ground again you don't have to do that in this you, you every time you touch a wall if you do a wall jump your double jump and your air dash refresh so they've put some just absolutely ridiculous uh platforming challenges together just based off the fact that every time you wall jump, you can do all your other additional jumps again. <laughs> that, that was why I giggled a little when you, you described them as mini platforming challenges, because many of these Xerxes coins challenges take up entire rooms. That's true, yeah. <laughs> I, I will say, um, one of the platforming challenges i think that i struggled with the most was it was for a side quest uh mm-hmm. and i'll talk about that side quest a little bit after this the um the one where you with the pirate captain and you have to go yeah. this bird mm-hmm. yeah i uh and, and there were just these things hanging off the ceiling that some of them were covered in spikes and some of them weren't and there's like all over a, a bottomless chain. pit I mean, yeah, it functions basically the same as a Xerxes coin. You have to go to the bird, and then you have to go back. And just the specific chain of air dashes, wall jumps, and all that stuff over a bottomless pit, uh, that frustrated me uh, immensely until I succeeded. <laughs> and then when I succeeded, I noticed that the side quest had bugged out, and I couldn't complete it. Oh. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> Did you do the impossible climb? Did you find that one? I don't think I did, no. No. Oh. There's another one just to the right of the, the door to the final boss that has an NPC in it. One of the shorter side quests in the game, because like the side quest is just right there localized in his little room, is he wants you to climb to the top of the tower that he's in and gather three lanterns or light bulbs whatever they were and you, you get a heart upgrade out of now. it yeah I, yeah I did find it but i didn't do it i tried mm. <laughs> it, it took it took me about 20 minutes but i got through it i didn't think it was that bad um 
I, there, there is one thing I wanted to say, and, and that is about this uh, related to the side quest. Is I did notice a couple of technical problems. Um, mm. There were some performance issues that might be that I, that could be because like I have an original Switch, uh, like not even the one with the improved battery life. Mm. Um, so and you know I've had it for a while, so it's possible that that my hardware is a little old. But I also noticed things like sometimes I would start a dialogue and it would zoom in to like you're talking to the character, but the dialogue box just wouldn't appear for a while. Oh. Oh, no. I didn't encounter yeah, any and, of this. <laughs> and so this, uh, I forget what it's called, but there's a side quest where you talk to the fire captain. After you get that, this is a thing I looked up. This has apparently happened to multiple people. After you get that, check your quest log to see if the description is empty or not. Because if it's Mm. not, then you're fine. But if all you have is the name of the quest, it's bugged out. You need to reload a previous save, which this game doesn't let you do staggered saves. So I didn't discover that this quest was bugged until, like seven hours after I took the quest. Oh. Yeah, that was pretty rough. <sighs> well, I know when I finished it, the parrot highlighted all the chests in the in the immediate area, and I thought, oh, that might be handy to find the rest of the collectibles later, but every time I revisited, the parrot wouldn't expand what she was showing me. It was still just the chests in that sunken beach area, whatever it's called. Uh... Yeah. I was a little disappointed by that. I, I wanted some help to find the collectibles because the, the game is pretty big and the map does keep track area by area of how many collectibles you found, but there were a few areas where I had completely filled in the map and I was still missing collectibles. And when I got to the end of the game, I thought, do I really want to go back and find all those collectibles I've missed? I decided pretty quickly I did not want to. <laughs> Yeah, there were a couple, like, Xerxes coins that I never ended up doing because I tried the platforming a couple times and was like, okay, Hmm. I've been playing for a while. If I keep doing this now, I'm actually, like, just going to get mad at it, so I'm just going (laughs) to do something else instead. Um, But, yeah, so we're both sort of around the same completion percentage. I'm at 86.57%. You're sort of around the same, right? Uh, 86.76%, yeah. Ooh, you found, like, one more thing than I did, apparently, I'm guessing. (laughs) So how long did it take you to beat this game? About the same. Uh, I haven't looked at my total playtime, but... I know it was 20 to 25 hours. Yeah. Um, that's pretty good. Like, uh, I, ha- I had a great time playing this game. Mm-hmm. Though, I will say, I- I'm a little medium on the story. Like, it, it does some neat things with time travel, but mm-hmm. some of the character moments I didn't really super love like to to i guess to keep it somewhat spoiler free at some point there is a a betrayal a heel turn 
and that means that you have to fight some of the other immortals, the the rest of the order of warriors that you're also yeah. part of. It was pretty obvious from the beginning of the game they were going to all end up as your boss fights. Like I was like, oh, these are all going to be bosses. That's blatantly obvious. I, I don't think that's a spoiler. <laughs> yeah. But it, it, it kind of reminded me of Asura's Wrath. Like the, the yeah. order of special warriors that think you betrayed them, but actually it was someone else. Did you ever fight the assassin? No! Yeah. I, I never ended up f- f- finding her at all. I assume she's down in the, in the sewer area. There was a tiny little area in there I never went into. I assume she's in there, but I thought it was pretty strange she didn't come up as part of the story because she was like the one who was most openly hostile to Sargon from the beginning anyway. And then she's yeah. just not really in the plot. I, I I didn't understand that. Uh, I wondered if I missed something. <laughs> yeah. So the the thing is, like, the immortals think you've betrayed them, and that causes them to be boss fights. And like in the lead up, there's always a little cutscene where you're where you're talking to them, and then they go somewhere else, and you have to go find them. And then there's always like a back and forth of, no, I didn't do it. I don't believe you. But <laughs> but what? But but you have to believe me, please. No. Now we're gonna fight. And then you beat them, and then suddenly they believe you and they like you again. Like, I what wasn't a big fan of that. I, I didn't really feel like that made a lot of narrative sense. It, it really felt like a re- requiescat and pache moment. Like, you know, after you've, you've killed your target, then you have a little conversation with them where, you know, it humanizes them a little bit, and you find out a little bit more about the plot. Felt like they were going towards an Assassin's Creed thing. And it just it just did not work in this plot, but I it didn't it didn't bother me that much because like the immortals to me were just blatantly from the moment the game started. I was like, oh, these guys exist to be boss fights, not to really be interesting parts of the plot. So I, I just I didn't care. the The motivation of the main villain also is was a little odd to me like i could okay i i i suppose i understand sort of his motivation but i don't know mm-hmm. why exactly doing the things that they that that he did means he will achieve his goal like why was all of this necessary for him to do to like achieve what he wanted That was why I wanted to carry on with the side quests because I typically in a game like this, especially if it's really based on Castlevania, there will be an alternate ending or a better ending, especially if you do a specific side quest that the game doesn't necessarily highlight for you. That does not seem to exist in this game, which is really the main thing that surprised me about it. Um I really thought that there would be an alternate final boss or an alternate way to do the final boss. So that way we could have a better ending than we got. But this game does kind of end on a tragedy (laughs) and uh, definitely room for a sequel to follow up on, which I think might be the point. Yeah, could be. I, I would have no objections at all to a sequel to this, but I also 
this is just something I read on social media. I haven't seen any official reports about this. I guess it didn't sell well, so that maybe not oh, happen. But if it really didn't sell well, that would be really disappointing because I think this was a great game, and Ubisoft needs to make more games like this instead of just more interchangeable open world stuff because. You know, not not that nonlinear platformers are a really out there idea, but as far as AAA development, yeah, they don't make games like this anymore, and I wish they would. Yeah. I mean, the last one was like Metroid Dread, right? Yeah, yeah, and, and that in itself was surprising. We got a game like that. Even from Nintendo, who are still you know, developing like it's 20 years in the past. <laughs> at least they finally got rid of the live system in Mario games. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or at least in Mario Odyssey. Isn't it back in Wonder? I think it's back in Wonder. I think it was, but it was so non-impactful for me, I didn't even notice. Like, I, I was never in any danger of running out. I will, one thing I do want to highlight from uh, The Lost Crown as well is it has some really, really cool, like, biomes, areas, just areas of the map. Mm, yeah. Uh, my personal favorite was the, the Raging Sea. That uh, place was so cool. I just, that was the coolest, like, visual area in the game. It's just, it's also the most boring in terms of level design. It's literally just a bunch of screens just going to the right, which was kind of disappointing. I think they could have done a lot more with that area if they yeah, had like, made it a proper nonlinear platforming area instead of just a linear run to the right, get to the boss, the end kind of level. Take like one detour that goes up. <laughs> If you really care about getting those Xerxes coins, yeah. Yeah, but it was to... Because it's a Prince of Persia game, it does some interesting things with time. Um, so the Raging Sea, for those who aren't familiar, is literally the ocean that's frozen in time in the middle of, like, a, a naval battle in a storm. So there's... You're on, like, shipwrecks, or ships in the process of becoming shipwrecks that are frozen in time and there's like wooden boards flying all over the place that are platforms there's walls that instantly kill you that are just literal lightning bolts that are frozen it's so sick uh the forest i i i did really like the the forest where the the walk walk trees originally come from i i like mm. that area as well with like the, the enemies that were hidden in the grass and stuff, I thought that was very cool. Uh, the Tower of Silence, or not the Tower of Silence, the um, the Temple of Knowledge, I really liked. It had some really cool platforming challenges with the like perception or clairvoyance or the the thing that you press the right thumbstick for. Yeah, that felt like of all the abilities in the game, the most that are underutilized. It just seemed to disappear after a while. They just quit using it as an element of the level design, which was disappointing to me because I think you can do some really cool things with that dimension shifting stuff. Like Guacamelee is another nonlinear platformer. It's oh, built yeah. almost entirely around that mechanic, and it's great. Uh, but you get that ability midway through Prince of Persia. It's really prominent in like the area that you unlock it in. And then it 
almost never reappears again. It's it's weird. I don't know why it was made that way. There was like one enemy that it's relevant for that like the the ghost thing with the claws you can like phase mm. shift to attack it while it's out of phase. I'm using D&D terms here because I don't remember what it was in the game, but like before you have it those things are super annoying and then once you finally get it and then once you do get it it's they're a lot more doable to come back to the combat one more thing i wanted to mention is uh so you have a ranged attack it's a bow uh menelias's mm. bow right yeah i believe so yeah yeah his not not remembering yeah his was one of the trickier boss fights I had to try that one a couple times as well, just because he has so many fast ranged attacks that have like widespreads and stuff as well. That and his counters. I just, I couldn't get the timing on his counters right. Yeah. But so you have either Menelias' bow, or if you hold the button, I believe it's X, uh, it turns into a chakram, which you can mm-hmm. use to solve puzzles and you can use to hit enemies with, although it doesn't do a lot of damage. Um, yeah. The one thing I did really like that you could do is you could juggle it. You could like throw it, and then once it almost gets back to you, you hit it and it goes back out again. Unfortunately, yeah. it doesn't go in the same direction. It just goes horizontally. So yeah. you can't like shoot it for diagonally and back again. I never really used it all this mu- that much, but I thought it was really funny. <laughs> yeah, the combat tutorial taught me how to do that, and I thought that was really clever. And then I immediately forgot I could do that and never used it again. <laughs> I didn't use the bow much at all, really. Uh, I, I found it kind of weak. Even after I upgraded it as high as I could, it still didn't feel like it did all that much damage. So I just, I really only used it when I had to. Yeah, same. I, 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 I did, uh, by the sounds of it, I think I used it a little more than you because it did help you chain air combos which was useful for mm. like the really large bosses um where you would spend most of the fight in the air anyway because it would they would like stomp the ground and stuff uh mm. but yeah that that is sort of one of the downsides i think of the combat system is there are a lot of things that you can theoretically do that are taught to you by like the combat trainer but you're just not frequently in a position where you're actually able to do them because either the enemy dies too quickly or it's just not the kind of enemy that's really conducive to those kinds of combos or your attack gets interrupted because there's another enemy that jumps in and attacks you you know Mm. it's i i I feel like it had more potential for depth than was actually like uh i don't want to say reasonable but like realistic to actually apply well you when you design a system in a video game it often has friction with the realities of the game you've actually made guacamelee had the same thing guacamelee was all about throwing your enemies into the air and chasing after them you could do these super long combos it had a combat trainer who taught you how to do these things and some of these combos just go on forever and ever there's like 30 endpoint steps to them you will never, ever use these combos outside of the trainer. It's just teaching you what you can do, and you have to kind of freestyle it from there. I don't think the game actually believes that you're actually going to be doing these super long combos. <laughs> outside of uh, 
the uh, Othra charge fights, because actually in those fights where you fight a time-displaced version of Sargon, it's a, it's a mirror match, Sargon is actually super easy to toss around, and you can do all of those combos against him, which was kind of interesting. Yeah. I, I did like that from a thematic, uh, th- those fights from a thematic standpoint as well, because, again, it's Prince of Persia game, so it does weird things with time. The, like, different Sargons from different timelines that have experienced Mount Koth differently and mm. have therefore had, like, their priorities shifted or their mentality to the situation shifted, and you're gently in the one uh, going through and finding the <laughs> alternates and absorbing their powers because uh, uh, they have Athra surges that you don't have yet. I wonder how many kids out there know what the heck we're talking about with Jet Li in the one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's... Bit, uh, bit of a deep cut there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm here for. I make deep cuts and wrestling jokes. But yeah, it, I, I do like that from a thematic standpoint as well. Uh, it does have a nice little bit of, um, I'm so sorry I'm about to use this phrase, but a ludonarrative harmony. <laughs> the opposite of dissonance. All in all, I think this game is absolutely worth your time. There's some, I mean, maybe, you know, the the amount of technical issues I had is a me problem, considering you didn't Mm. experience any of them. I have a tendency to forget technical problems shortly after I've experienced them. So it doesn't mean I didn't run into problems. Uh, I'm sure I didn't run into anything as as serious as what you said, but I'm not saying that I definitely had a, a flawless experience, but... Nothing significant enough that it stuck with me. Yeah, but I I thought this game was really good. It it like it's been a while since. I mean, part of it is I I wanted to cover it on the podcast, and I didn't want to spend ages doing it like I've done for the the um, the Indigo Disc DLC for Pokemon Scarlet and Violet, which I think this is the third time I've mentioned on the podcast now that like no I'm I'm still playing it. I haven't finished it yet. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but I, I genuinely like I, I wanted to play this game frequently, and I did, and I played it for like twenty four and a half hours, and I did that over the course of I think like a week and a half. Wow. Yeah, I, I did not play a lot of Monster Hunter because I was playing so much Prince of Persia. I, I really, really <laughs> like this game, and it sounds like you did as well. Yeah, I thought it was a great game. People who have listened to the podcast for a while will know I wasn't a great fan of Metroid Dread. Uh, I like this a lot better than Metroid Dread. But it's still not on the level of, like, the indie greats, because I still think the indie indie developers just have the non-linear platformer. It's it's their domain now. But that's because, you know, AAA has abandoned it for so long like back in the day konami made all the great ones all the great castlevania games it's why we call them metroidvanias uh but they just haven't made any in the longest time and i I really want companies like nintendo like ubisoft to continue making this style of game because they're good games and 
I'd like to see more resources put in them because like a lot of the indie ones I play, you know, they're fun, but they're not as good as they could be if they had more resources behind them. So I would like to see AAA pick up this kind of game again and not, not let the fact that maybe this game didn't sell very well uh, prevent them from doing that because it's not going to sell well if you don't commit to it. You, you got to keep making them, then they will start selling well. You, you can't just go, oh, we didn't strike gold first time out, so let's just give up. Hey, maybe if Hartforth Alicia actually comes out one of these days, um, there will finally be the perfect independent Metroidvania. Speaking of deep cuts. <laughs> I mean, I, as far as like genres that have been abandoned by AAA publishers go, hey, uh, can we get some more real-time strategy games made by uh, <laughs> indie developers? Uh, I mentioned Warcraft 2 earlier in this recording. I'm a big fan of Warcraft 3 specifically. Warcraft uh, 3 is amazing, but yeah. Yeah. with the... Real-time strategy got its lunch eaten by MOBAs. Uh, just literally a parasite that ate real-time strategy from the inside out. Fan-developed maps using RTS custom campaign tools that then completely kicked RTSs out of the competitive gaming scene. You know, that was StarCraft Two, which even 10 years ago was still a pretty big thing, but I think like 12 years ago was kind of the height of StarCraft 2. Then they did the Warcraft 3 Reforged, which was just so terrible. Like They really dug their own grave with real-time strategy, at least uh, Blizzard did. But There was... Age of Empires 4, I guess. Yeah. They They still put out remasters of like Age of Empires and things like that, but those are definitely aimed at the people who played them when they were kids. I, I, I don't see a lot of the, the new... Like me. Yeah, the new younger players getting super excited about Age of Empires 2 Remastered. I just don't see that happening. <laughs> but like Speaking of indies and real-time strategy, like uh, there was a, a really... Uh, what's the word? Uh, ambitious real-time strategy game for Game Boy Color. It was called Warlocked. And yeah, I used those words correctly. It was a real-time strategy game on Game Boy Color. And it wasn't super sophisticated, wasn't super complicated, but it was really ambitious for what they could do on the Game Boy Color. And I would like to see an indie developer do a take on that, like a super lo-fi real-time strategy game. You know, just work within your limited means to make something that looks like an 8-bit game, but it's a real-time strategy game. That could be fun to play. I think that's. I think the the area of real time strategy has also sort of been overtaken by the more like management sim kind of games. Like yeah, uh, like city builders. Less, it's less about the combat. Yeah, city builders. Uh, you know, like Timberborn. Um, against the storm. Against the storm is a recent one. Uh, the really cold one. Uh, Frostpunk. Yeah, Frostpunk, stuff like that. You, you, you're still pressing the same kinds of buttons as a real-time strategy in the terms of base building and resource management, but 
there's not as much focus on fighting an enemy faction. Yeah, like against the storm, just outright looks like Warcraft Three. It has almost. I don't want to say the exact same graphics, but if Warcraft Three was a graphical inspiration for the visual style they went with, I would go, yeah, that makes sense because it looks a lot like Warcraft Three before Reforged. Yeah, mm. less the less said about Reforged, the better. <laughs> I'm sure Blizzard feels the same way at this point. <laughs> Warcraft 3 Reforged? That never happened. Don't know what you're talking about. We didn't do that. I did want to mention one more thing that I liked about Prince of Persia that I just for completely skipped over when I was rereading my notes. Um, the ability to take screenshots and pin them to your map so you know where you have to come back later. Great yeah. feature. Love that in a Metroidvania. More of them should do that. It also has the traditional badges that you can just mark on the map wherever you want, and there are a lot more options. Like, there's, like, a question mark, a star, a jewel, so that way you can kind of specialize in what you're marking. And there's no limit, at least I didn't reach the limit on those, whereas the, the screenshot ones, it's actually a collectible. You have to find more uh, of a certain kind of collectible thing i yeah i hate using the same i hate using the same word over and over but that's what happens when you record a podcast off the cuff um to take more screenshots so like there's that one npc at the very start of the game who teaches you how to do that and then as soon as i saw that i could just make my own marks that i could actually mark exactly what it was that i was marking versus just a screenshot that i would probably forget what i was supposed to be actually looking at in the image i just use those instead i didn't use this feature at all there, there was one puzzle in the game where the screenshot feature is actually very important uh it's one of the like puzzles that you have to do to get one of the things for the the inventor yeah, the, like, I, I know what you're talking about. The architect. Yeah, uh, where it's like in one room, there's the, the like the grid of nine things of when you go across them, a platform comes in and like yeah. squishes you if you're still there, mm -hmm. and then where like which ones you have to activate at the same time is on a wall in like a vastly different room. And yeah, the screenshot feature is really useful for that. I just used the Switch's screenshot button, <laughs> which I've been doing Fair. since the Switch came out. Like, in Breath of the Wild, you know, the the two shrines that have the solutions to their puzzles are in the other shrine. Every time I played Breath of the Wild, which is three or four times now, I've just taken a screenshot from the dashboard and just gone back to the dashboard <laughs> and looked at the solution there. I don't care if it's cheating. It feels right to me. <laughs> I wouldn't consider that cheating. You're using all the tools you have at your disposal. Yeah. If anything, like, in Breath of the Wild, you have the Sheikah Slate, which is, I mean, it's technically supposed to resemble a Wii U controller and not a Switch, I believe. Um, yeah. But, you know, it, it has a camera function as well. It's pretty much the same thing. <laughs> but yeah, so Prince of Persia of the Lost Crown, absolutely worth your time. All right, uh, 
next, we're going to talk about what we're going to be playing. Um, I am going to ask you as well, even though you may not be on the next episode. Uh, for me, I recently purchased the Apollo Justice Trilogy on Nintendo Switch. Mm. Uh, I've been making my way through that. I'm not super close to finishing it. I'm on, like, case two of Apollo Justice, i.e. the first one. <laughs> And as I said earlier in this recording, yep, still working on the Indigo Disc. It's still happening to be. Boy, some of those the Elite Four are really annoying. Uh, so yeah, I'll, I'll talk about that sometime in the future, I hope. Uh, how about you? What what have you got on the docket for stuff that's keeping you busy? Well, I was going to play the third game in the Arkham Trilogy, Batman Arkham Knight which uh, has been very well covered how bad the port is. And I I wanted to play it for myself, not because I disbelieved how bad the port was. I'm I'm sure the reporting was accurate and genuine. I I just, I have a higher tolerance for those kind of problems than other people. I wanted to see if I could put up with it and finish the game so I could finish all three games in the trilogy. Um, no, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> it is genuinely unpleasant to play, uh, especially driving the Batmobile. I will say this yeah. about the Batman Arkham Trilogy. I am annoyed that the reporting has focused so much on how bad the Batman Arkham Knight port is because the ports of Arkham Asylum and Arkham City, which are both better games, in my opinion, are both very good. And that is what you are really buying in this trilogy from my perspective. Like, I, I recommend the trilogy, especially if you can get it on sale just for those two games, because the ports are great for those two games, and I didn't hear almost anybody talking about them. It was just Arkham Knight, Arkham Knight, Arkham Knight. It's so bad. I was very frustrated with that reporting. Uh, but So I, ha- I haven't really picked out what I'm going to play since I'm not going to play Arkham Knight. I was thinking maybe Red Dead Redemption, which I picked up when it was new last year, but I was just stuffed with games at that point. I didn't have time to start it, but now I do. Uh, I'm also working on 100% finishing Hades before Hades 2 it comes out of early access because uh, I firmly believe as soon as Hades 2 leaves early access, it's also going to hit Switch, and that may or may not happen this year, but I, I figure... I have the time now to do Hades 100%. So that that's my main long-term project right now. Nice. Uh, all right, that that's our show for this episode. I just want to say thank you to Andrew again for stepping in, uh, coming in clutch, helping us out. It's I don't want to get into the details too much, but boy, it was a scheduling nightmare. <laughs> So, uh, Andrew, hey, thanks for helping out, man. You are welcome. Hey, everybody, Hilke here. I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this episode of End Focus. If you enjoyed it, please leave us a review on iTunes or share it on social media. It really helps us get noticed. You can also listen and subscribe on Spotify and other podcast services. Also, be sure to check out our sister show, Game Podular Unfocused, for all of your non-Nintendo needs. 
Follow us on Twitter and at GamePodular.com for updates, news, and other content. Links to all of our socials, including our Discord, may be found on our link tree, including also our newly made Mastodon account, which I will be posting from. If you'd like to support our shows, you can buy us a coffee or become a patron on the Game Podular Patreon. The details for both are on our website. Thank you! This episode was edited by Hilke, that's me, and you can follow me at at gear12 underscore turbo on Twitter, or more preferably at at gear12turbo at kind.social on Mastodon. I was joined today by Andrew, who you can find at at playcritically on Twitter. Have a good one!